to gather together as believers. And I know there are people here that haven't placed their faith in you. I pray today would be the day of salvation. And I know there are people that are, are running from you and rebelling against you. And some people are trying to play both, that they live for you and that they do other stuff. I pray you convict their hearts. I pray for those of us who just want to walk with you and want to know your plan and want to know your truth, that you would speak to our hearts today. Bring clarity into some of our minds where there's been confusion. We know you're not a God of confusion. Overwhelm us with your person and your love and your power and your boldness and your goodness and your truth and help us to trust you more. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, as I was reading this passage this week and preparing uh, for the sermon that I would present to you, I started thinking about there's a lot of things in life that I don't understand, which is probably not a newsflash. Even some of you are really a lot smarter than me. And there's things you probably don't understand. I don't understand when I'm leaving my office and it, it's later out and, and it's not even as bright out as it was before. Why is it still 100 degrees, God? Like, I don't get that. You're sovereign, you're in control. Why can't it be bouncing between 70 and 75 all the time? Why am I walking through a swamp? I don't understand. I don't understand. Here's one I don't get about the laws in our land. I don't understand why it is that my kids have to be in a car seat until they're like 25 and weigh more pounds than they're probably ever going to weigh. And that if I do get pulled over and I don't have them in a seatbelt, I might get arrested. But when I put them on the school bus provided by the government who makes those laws, they don't even have seatbelts. I don't understand. I don't understand. When I talk to some, there's some smart guys on our tech team, and some of you are computer people, and I'll start having conversations, and I think, I use a computer. How come I can't have this conversation? And then you start speaking in ones and zeros. <laughs> I don't understand. I was talking to a physicist friend of mine this week, and he's trying to explain to me gravity. I don't get that, okay? I know that I can't fly, but I don't understand gravity. I don't understand that. I don't, string theory, string cheese theory, whatever all that was. I don't get all that. There's a lot of stuff I don't understand. But probably what's most frustrating to me is when I don't understand what God's doing in my life. But I know he's doing something. Just by way of giving you an example, uh, the end of May, beginning of June, and most of the month of June, was uh, an interesting and rough time in my life. On May 31st, I was driving to my daughter's birthday party, the one who's being baptized today, and I hit a deer. Okay, that happens. Of course, deer are frolicking around on I-40. What was I thinking that I didn't see it? Deer comes running out, smashes my car, inconvenient, really bad for the deer. My car wasn't in great shape. And the insurance company originally told me my car was totaled. And so I thought, well, I'm going to get a new car. That's kind of cool. And then they called back and said, your car's not totaled. It's just really damaged. So it took about a month for my car to get fixed. In the meantime, that meant multiple rental cars, which the insurance paid for, which was great. And I was feeling really blessed. The first rental car I had was a 2016 Ford SUV, a lot nicer than the car that I drive. And I remember I was driving it down I-40 again, and it stopped working. It's a brand new car. It didn't totally stop working. It just wouldn't go any faster than 10 miles per hour. <laughs> I don't know if you've been on I-40, but they travel at about Mach 2 on I-40. And I'm, people are driving by me, the car's shaking, you know? And it was Enterprise was the rental car company. You know, their motto, we'll pick you up. <laughs> they don't tell you the last part, when we feel like it, you know, <laughs> driving the thing. Spend a bunch of time on the phone with them and they're doing this whole deal. They didn't come pick the car up. I ended up getting it back to my house and then went on a trip to St. Louis for a couple days and was calling them and trying to get them to replace the car and then had issues with the rental car place, a different rental car place in St. Louis and the flight got canceled there and there were delays and there was all kinds of stuff and it was frustrating and you feel like you've lived in a swamp by the time you get off the plane and come back and they brought me another car, Enterprise did. This time it wasn't a cool car, it was a minivan. Not like your cool swagger wagon. It was a not cool minivan. So I start, I'm like, whatever. I just start driving it. Other things keep happening in my life. That was when I shared a story with you about how I fell off the treadmill. It was in that period of time I fell off the treadmill. 
couple other things happen. And then one day we do a staff planning. We're planning stuff for the fall. And then after we did the morning planning session, we decided we were going to go to a Durham Bulls baseball game. And I'm driving the you know, people passenger carrier minivans. I'm like, hop in the car. Only two people get in the car with me. <laughs> I had somebody come to me out of the first service and say, my wife told me I'm never allowed to ride with you. Because then we're leaving the baseball game, and so if you've ever left the baseball game, you know it gets packed, and there's all kinds of people around, and you're just trying to wedge your way out. I'm sitting there, John Cullen, our executive pastor, is in the passenger seat, one of our interns, our children intern, Philip Melcher's in the back seat. Interns don't get a decision, so he had to ride with us, and so we're, right, we're, dry, we're sitting there, and this gas truck comes, and he's trying to merge through all these cars trying to get out of the Durham Bulls game. And I looked over at John, and I said, I'm not gonna be a gentleman. I got a meeting in 20 minutes in Briar Creek. We're not letting this guy get through. But before I could be a jerk, he just starts driving, and there's a car in front of me, and he starts crushing the car in front of me. And we're screaming, like in the car, the guy's flailing, it's in the driver's seat, and he finally stops, did not kill that guy. But now we gotta stop and give an accident report. So we give the accident report to the police, and finally I just said, here's my cell, like, give me a call, I gotta go, and we leave. And as we're driving out of there, in this rental car, I said, well, I sure don't wanna wreck this rental car to John Cullen, he's a witness, Philip Melcher's a witness. Five seconds later, Wham! We get rear-ended. I said, as we were getting hit, are you kidding me? <laughs> They're laughing at me like you are in the midst of the car accident. I end up coming home with a different rental car and then have to tell my family what's going on. My nine-year-old daughter hears that, tells one of her nine-year-old friends. Her nine-year-old friend says, there's something wrong with your dad because stuff keeps happening to him. After that, a couple other things happened. You know, we went to a friend's house and we thought our daughter was drowning in his pool. He dives in the pool after. She was kidding. <laughs> Kids, <laughs> we love them. <laughs> and then on the way home from that, some guy drives into our lane and is driving at me. I'm telling you, it's not my fault. It's driving at me. I swerve, then a guy almost rear ends me and he wants to fight and I want to fight. It's just terrible. So I go and I sit down and talk with one of my friends and say, listen to what's happening in my life. He starts telling me stuff. The next day I get up. I dropped my cell phone in the toilet. <laughs> I, I literally, when the phone fell in the toilet, I looked up, I'm listening, God, like what is it? But I didn't get what it was. Ever been there? It's like God's doing something, but maybe you don't understand. And I don't know what's going on in friends and family and guests and everybody that's here today. I don't know all the details of what's happening in your life, but do you understand what God's doing? Do you understand in your marriage? Do you understand in your neighborhood? Do you understand at your workplace? Do you understand with your career, with school, with relationships, with your finances, with your health? Do you realize, do you see what God's doing? And if you're unclear in any way, or you just don't get it, you should have no problem identifying with the guys we're going to look at in Mark chapter 8 today. Because what's happening in Mark chapter 8 is Jesus is doing a miracle he's already done before. Do you know why he's doing it? Because they don't get it. In Mark chapter 8, we're going to look at verses 1 through 13. Some of you have a Bible and it'll be titled at the very top. Jesus feeds the 4,000. I said the 4,000. Not the popular miracle of Jesus feeding the 5,000. Some of you might think that it's wrong. This isn't a lesser miracle. It's not some knockoff miracle, by the way. You know, like you buy a Honey Nut Cheerios, but then you're like, what's oh, a good deal on the nuts of great cheer? I should get those. It's like, no, he preached the feeding the 5,000. He didn't have a new message, so now we're doing the feeding of the 4,000. <laughs> There's a reason why it's repeated. And there's a lot of differences in this miracle from the other miracle, but there's one thing he's teaching that's the same, it's his power. And they don't get it. They didn't understand last time. In fact, in Mark chapter 6 and verse 52, after the feeding of the 5,000, after Jesus walks on water, he gets in the boat, and then Mark tells us they didn't get it because they didn't understand the feeding of the loaves. They didn't understand the loaves. They didn't get it because their hearts were hard. 
And at the end of this miracle, and we're not going to get to all of it today, but next week we'll see some of the verses. Verse 17, Jesus says, are your hearts hardened? Do you not understand? And then he, in verse 21, he says, not to shame them, but he's pleading with them. Do you understand? And the answer is no, they don't. And neither do most of us most of the time. What happens here would be comical if we couldn't identify with it so much. Look at it. Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 1. During those days, and so it's a continuation of what we saw last week. Remember last week, there was crowds of people coming to Jesus. There was a deaf guy. Jesus is so personal with him, he speaks to him in sign language. He heals his ears and loosens his tongue. And then it said that the people were amazed. They were overwhelmed with amazement beyond what we could ask or imagine. He does everything well in allusion to his creation work in Genesis 1. He makes the deaf hear and the mute speak, Exodus 4, 11. And so it's just the word is just coming out in this passage. And it's still this time. And there's still this huge crowd. Another large crowd gathered. And since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to himself. And he said, I have compassion for these people. So there's a lot of differences between this miracle and the feeding of the 5,000 you can read back in Mark chapter 6. One, there's a different amount of people, 4,000 to 5,000. There's a different amount of stuff that's offered. Instead of five loaves and a couple fish from this little boy's lunch, there's seven loaves and a few fish. We don't get the number. There's a different amount left over. Instead of being with Jesus for one day, they're with Jesus for three days. But one of the most significant things to me is that there's other places, including Mark chapter 6, where Bible authors talk about Jesus having compassion, but here Jesus speaks in the first person. It's not in the third person about Jesus. Instead, it's from Jesus here. He says, I have compassion for these people. They've already been with me three days, and they have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse. He's thinking not just about their current situation, but about their future like he does with you. They'll collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance. They walked a long ways. His disciples answered, but where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread for them to eat? They don't, they don't have a clue. And Jesus says back to them, how many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Seven, they replied. So you got food and nobody else does? Oh, that's an interesting observation. But verse six, he told the crowd to sit down on the ground. When he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples. So the disciples are the one that feed the people, the disciples to set before the people. And they did so. They had a few small fish as well. Maybe sardines, maybe leftover pieces of fish. He gave thanks for them also, and he told his disciples to distribute them. The people ate and were satisfied. That word for satisfied is like an animal that's being fattened up for the slaughter. It's as much as they could eat. Afterwards, the disciples picked up seven baskets full. So one of the differences between this miracle and the last miracle is the baskets they had last time, there were 12 of them, but they were small baskets to carry one or two meals. This basket, the word that's used here, is a hamper, large enough to carry a grown man. In fact, the word used in Acts chapter 9 and verse 25, when Paul's lowered through, he's escaping, he hides in this basket. So what you see then is at the end of this miracle, after they made what they had available to God, they've got more than they had when they started. Seven baskets full of broken pieces that were left over. About 4,000 men were present. And people debate about how many people were there. And Matthew tells us in Matthew chapter 15 that there were kids there and women there too, but there were 4,000 men. And so at this point, 5,000 men one time, 4,000 men another time, plus the other people that weren't counted. There's lots of people. And they still don't get it. That's the point. With all the similarities and all the differences between these two miracles, which you, you can go through and look at the, just the structure of what happens, the feeding, and then they get in a boat, and then the, they don't get it, and then the declaration, like all the stuff that happens, it's a mirror image. Um, Mark chapter 8 from Mark chapter 6. It's like the same thing twice, 
It's a teaching technique. Whenever you repeat things, it's a teaching technique. It's what Jesus is doing here is he's teaching them. And the reason why is because they don't understand. Mark chapter 6, verse 52. They didn't understand the loaves. Mark chapter 8, verse 17. Do you understand? Verse 21. Do you understand? No. But what's interesting is if you read verses 17 through 21, those of you who brought your Bibles, we don't have it on the screen, they knew the facts. How many loaves were left over after we fed the 5,000? 12. They got it. Boom. Passed the test. How many loaves were left over after we fed the 4,000? Seven. Boom. You got it. Do you understand? Nope. It wasn't that they forgot. It wasn't that they didn't know the facts. It's that they missed the point. There are at least three things that we see in this passage of Scripture that we're going to look at this week and next week that they didn't understand. They didn't understand the power of Jesus. They didn't understand the person of Jesus. And so they didn't understand the plan of Jesus. And that's your outline for this week and next week, by the way. So we've got to understand the power of Jesus. We've got to understand the person of Jesus. We've got to understand the plan of Jesus. And if we don't understand the power of Jesus, and we don't understand the person of Jesus, we will never understand the plan of Jesus. Don't miss that. If you don't understand the power of Jesus and the, pl- the uh, person of Jesus, you will not understand the plan of Jesus. And what we see here is that these guys, they don't get the power. They don't get the the person. And so that's why they can't possibly understand the plan that he has here. Many of us, we want to know God's plan for our life. What do you want me to do? And what's next? And how's it? Do you understand his power? Do you understand his person? See, you must, first point, you must understand the power of Jesus if you're going to understand the plan of Jesus. If you're going to understand the plan of Jesus, you must understand the power of Jesus. So today we talked about the power of Jesus. Remember last week, we talked about how personal, how Jesus is a personal Savior, how personal he is, and we looked at the deaf man, how he pulled the deaf man aside for a private conversation, and that private conversation, he speaks to him in sign language because that's how he could communicate. And how he communicates to us exactly the way that we will receive it, that we hear it. Some people he speaks Greek, and some people he speaks Aramaic. Some people he's confrontational, the Pharisees. Some people he's intentionally distant, so they will pursue. Some people he's incredibly intimate, like that deaf man. He's very personal. And we saw Psalm 139. He knows our thoughts before we think them. He knows our words before we say them. He's so personal. And then to turn around and talk about his power is like the flip side. It's like the contrast. What we were talking about last week was his intimacy. What we're talking about this week is his majesty. He does set the stars in place. He does tell the ocean to only go this far. He is all-powerful. He holds the universe in his hands. And you can't have one without the other, or else you won't understand his person. It's when the two come together that you understand the beauty of who Jesus Christ is. He is the lion and the lamb. If he's only the lion, why would you relate with him? You'd be terrified. He destroys his enemies. That's the lion. If he's only the lamb who lays down his life, Our temptation is to make him incredibly sentimental. He's both terrifying and worthy to be treasured. He's both majestic and intimate. It's when those things come together that we begin to understand him. And here we see his power and this miracle that he takes. He doesn't even need seven loaves. He takes these seven loaves. He feeds these people. There's more left over than when he started. He is the bread of life that does this. This is a picture of an Old Testament miracle where God provided manna from heaven, only it's even better because there's leftovers. And he told people, the manna, you can't keep it for extra time. He's showing, I'm better than Moses. I am God. I can create. I will provide. I'm the only one that satisfies, and he is powerful. And we love to quote verses, one of my favorite verses and one of the favorite verses I hear around our church. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 20. Now to him who's able... 
That's a word of power, by the way. Now to him who's able to do immeasurably more than we could ask or imagine, beyond what we could dream up, according to his power, that word for power, it's tied back into Ephesians chapter one. In Ephesians chapter one, it talks about that that's the power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. That power is at work where? Look at the verse. It's at work within us. He's speaking to the saints in Ephesus. It's those who place their faith in Jesus Christ. That power is at work in each one of us who says that we believe on the cross of Jesus Christ for our salvation. It's because the tomb was empty, that he can offer us life. The the very power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in our lives. Then guess what? His power should be seen in our life. We should experience that power, but many times we don't. Because here's what a lot of us do. I think this is a temptation. I know that I've done it is that we think about God, he's omnipotent, all-powerful in the past, but he's impotent in the present. And so we, oh, he part of the Red Seas. He spoke creation into existence. He said all that stuff in Job chapter 38. He really does tell that, and he takes Leviathan home as a pet and can tell the rain when to stop and controls all these things. But, but in this situation, I better do it. In this situation, I'm trusting in the doctor. In this situation, I'm trusting in the bank account. In this situation, if it's that person, I need their, their approval. I need this person to do that. And it, and we ignore his power. I remember one time I preached Ephesians 3.20 to a seminary group. Now, seminary people, they know the Bible well. doesn't mean it's all internalized, but they got in there, more than the average Christian, they've got verses memorized, they know all kinds of stuff, and I preached this verse, Ephesians 3.20. I talked about his power. I talked about how he could do more than we could ever ask or imagine. I talked about some personal things he had done in my life, my wife's life. And I talked about how oftentimes we don't have because we don't ask. That's James chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Afterwards, this woman comes up to me, a seminary person says, I have cancer. I never thought to ask God to take it away. And I've been a pastor long enough. I know this. You just keep a solemn fit, no matter what you're thinking inside. Mm, okay. I'm thinking, are you kidding me? Like, you've been to church on Easter, right? Like, you know the tomb was empty? So you know the guy who was raised from the dead, and he has power to raise people from the dead. You have cancer, and you're not even asking him about it? Do you understand his power? And I don't know what the situation is in your life. Maybe it's cancer, maybe it's not. Maybe he's, maybe he's going to heal the cancer. Maybe he's going to give you the power, the strength, the ability to walk through that difficulty with faithfulness. Because what he does when we step out by faith and we come to him with his power is he then empowers us to be obedient. Sometimes he does miraculous stuff like healing. Sometimes he doesn't. But he empowers us to endure it. Either way, his power gets put on display I don't know what you're facing in your marriage, your finances, whatever the circumstances are that are happening in your life. But do you realize the tomb is empty? We don't have to just talk about that one Sunday a year. If the tomb is empty, do you know what that means? He has power over sin. And it doesn't take much life experience to figure out you and I don't have power over sin. Have you ever struggled with sin that you wanted to stop and you just don't stop? He's got power over that. He his, the tomb's empty, your life doesn't have to be empty. He's got power over the purpose and direction of your life. Do you know? Do you get it figured out? Some of us don't. He's got power over death. That's enough. Book closed. It's all, like, why do we even need to know more? Because if he's got power over death, all of us are, none of us here have power over death, by the way. We're all going to die. But we go to the one who has the power over death so that we can have eternal life. And if we go to him for eternal life, why wouldn't we go to him and we drop our cell phone in the toilet? Or we lose our job, or we have some decision to make, or we get cancer, or there's, because we don't understand his power. These guys didn't understand his power. 
and you see it here, go back in your verse, you get the setting in the first few verses, Jesus huddles them up. There's this huge crowd. We know there's at least 4,000 men. And he huddles these guys together before he says anything to the crowd. It's a little private moment. And he says, I have compassion on these people. The word for compassion is he feels in his bowels. He's moved with emotions. And we've seen it before where he saw the people and they were like sheep without a shepherd. How does that feel if you are the good shepherd? My sheep, they know my voice, John chapter 10, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd and he's come as the good shepherd and he sees these people without direction, without purpose, without meaning, they're hurting, they're helpless and it breaks his heart but here it's not over spiritual issues, here it's physical. He cares about both. Here he notices they've been with him for three days and they have nothing to eat and then it says at the end of verse three, they've come a long distance which I thought, man, who signed up for this? 4,000 people signed up for this? It shows how attractive Jesus is. Imagine somebody calls you today after church and they want you to sign up for a timeshare. You know, it's like three days and four nights or whatever, all this stuff works. And here it is, it's, it's three days and two nights they've been together. How do you get there? Well, you take care of your own transportation. It's called walking. <laughs> You're going to walk a long distance. Okay, what are the accommodations like? Well, you'll have no place to lay your head. <laughs> oh, this sounds really attractive so far. And then, is it all you can eat? No, there's actually nothing to eat. There's no food, no granola bars, no gummy bears. Sorry, kids, no goldfish. There were kids here besides women and children. I can't even get my kids after a dinner to not want a snack. Can you imagine three days with no food? People get beyond hungry. They get hangry. You know what I'm talking about? These people are hangry. They're angry hungry. And Jesus sees this and he's got compassion on them. It shows how attractive Jesus is that they would come, that they would sacrifice because they want to hear his teaching. They want to be healed by him. They're not just angry, they're desperate. They're like us. There's got to be more. I've got this problem. They're coming to Jesus. And his disciples answer and they show their ignorance, verse 4. His disciples answered, but where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? <laughs> this is comical. Because they're going to the guy, uh, just a little summary of the life of Jesus. He's born in Bethlehem. By the way, that is literally translated house of bread. He's already fed 5,000 people two or three months earlier in chapter 6. He declares of himself after that feeding, I am the bread of life. We know, as people in the church, that when we celebrate communion, we take bread as symbolic of his body because in the Last Supper that he shared with his disciples, he said, as he breaks bread, this is my body. He is the bread of life. And they're saying to him, where can anyone get bread? It'd be funny if it wasn't so true of many of us. It'd be like if someone said, hey, Scott, you know, everybody here hasn't eaten in three days and you could feed them all. If you can find somebody in the congregation who can hit one out of 10 free throws. That's not very hard, by the way, one out of 10. And I look out and Steph Curry's sitting in the audience. Hey, Steph, do you know anybody that could hit one out of 10? <laughs> like, do I get to look at the rim? Would it be what he's thinking? But look, if all the technology went bad today and I look over and Trevor's Bill Gates. Hey, you built that computer, Bill. Do you know anybody that could fix it? Except those aren't good enough illustrations because it's still possible that they wouldn't be able to do it. Here you have God himself, the point of this miracle, 
when he brought manna from heaven in the Old Testament, he declared, I can provide for you miraculously in a way that no one's ever provided before. And he feeds the 5,000. Guess what? I'm better than Moses. I'm the God who created this stuff. And you just saw me do the creation. He does everything well. Genesis 1, 31. Last verse. Created was good. Created was good. Created was good. He just did new creation of the deaf man. How do you guys not get this? He's the bread of life. But he's so patient. Look what he says back to them. He, he doesn't say, step back. I'm going to put on a show, and I hope you guys get it this time. Instead, he puts the ball back in their court. Look at verse 5. This is here on purpose. How many loaves do you have? How many loaves do you got? No one can come up with any bread. How many do you guys have? They have seven. And what Jesus is essentially saying here is this. You give me what you have, and I'm going to do what I do. And that's what he says to all of us. You give me what you have, your time, your talent, your money, your, the truth that I've entrusted you with, the freedom that I've given you, the life change that I've done in your life. You give that to me, and I will do what only I can do. You offer it to me, give it to me. And notice he doesn't say, seven loaves, that's not enough. You think about what the disciples could have thought here. How many loaves do you have? Oh, Peter, we have seven, but if we give all seven, we won't have enough to eat. Let's give them five. Maybe they think to themselves, we left our boats, we left the nets, we left our jobs, we left the tax collector's booth, we left our families, we left safety, we left security. It's enough, Jesus. We've given you enough. But what you see in a relationship with Jesus is he's continually calling us to new steps of faith. And we've seen people here at our church. We've seen people that have come and professed faith in Jesus before but never given financially. And then they start tithing. And you know what they see? God provide. But if I give, then I won't have. And I have story after story of people saying, you know, like, we, didn't have, we didn't know how we were going to do it. We paid the bill and then we got this, we paid double on the electric bill a couple months ago, didn't know it, and they sent us a check. God's provision. We know how we we're going to buy the groceries and we got free groceries. God's provision. But they see it because then they've availed themselves. Now people have never shared the gospel before. And they say they don't know what they're doing, they don't know how to do it, but they're, they don't just need their pastor to tell people about Jesus on Sunday morning. They start sharing in their neighborhoods and they see somebody come to Christ. You know, people that have been hiding sin, been hiding stuff, and then they finally get honest about it and get real about it and then God brings them freedom and then they can start to see in other people, oh, you're still hiding like I was hiding. And they start to make their stuff known and make it available. What Jesus keeps saying is, you keep giving, keep giving to me and you're going to keep seeing me do things that other people don't get to see. And disciples got to see Jesus work here in a way the crowd didn't understand. The crowd experienced the miracle, but it was the people that were serving, it was the people that were surrendering, that got to see and experience the power of God. If God's going to teach you about his power, then you need to surrender to him. You need to make yourself available to him. And whatever the areas you think, well, that'd be, that would be really hard. Like wherever you're holding back from God, that's probably the next area he's going to ask you to surrender because being available to him, it's not a one-time decision. It's something we continually are doing. I remember one time in college, we had a missionary speaker. I went to a Christian college, a church kind of college, and uh, at the beginning of every semester, they would do these spiritual emphasis, and so it would be different things. And this time it was a, a missionary that was coming to speak, and it was Missions Week. And they were doing this conference where all week they're talking about surrendering everything. You know they're going to ask you to go to Africa or Australia or somewhere far away at the end of the week. And so they're building up. You surrender everything to God. You're going to give, do everything, do whatever he wants you to do. His theme for the week, the speaker, was anything, anytime, anywhere. The question was, will you do anything God wants you to do? Anytime he asks you to do it, will you go anywhere he calls you to go? 
So the last night, kind of predictable, right? Like he's given a challenge. If you want to do anything, anytime, anywhere, he said, come up here. We got these cards. They say anything, anytime, anywhere. And you sign the card, put the date on it, and you just hang on to it for as long as you want to hang on to it for the rest of your life. And he gives this decision. We're at this Christian college. Most people trying to live for Jesus. And they sing just as I am 575 times or whatever it was. And everybody's up forward except for me. A few other people sprinkle through the place. And and here it was, it's like, well, I'm not trying to rebel against God, but I don't know if I want to do anything. What if anything means, like, cancer? What if anything means something I don't like? I don't know. I don't know if I can do this and be honest with you, God. And it was like I had cement in my shoes. I'm looking up there. I got friends on the stage, people kneeling at the altar. I'm a Bible major. Like, you know, I want people to know Jesus, but I'm, I don't know if I'm going to do anything. How about you? I didn't go forward that night. A few days later, I was in an office where they had some of those cards. I grabbed one of those cards. I took it back to my room. It's not like me saying, I don't want cancer, stopping God from giving it to me. The question is really this. Do I trust that if he does give me cancer, that's what's best for me? And the only way that happens is I know his power, and I learn about his person, that I know that he's good, and he could take it away, or he could give me endurance through it, and he's going to do whatever brings himself the most glory, and then that's what's going to ultimately make me most satisfied in him. Do I, do I believe that? That's, that's the ultimate question. And so I made the decision. Anything, anytime, anywhere. But then now new stuff comes up. And the question is, not did you make the decision once, but what about today? And what about tomorrow? And what about the day after that? And what about you? Did you do anything God wants you to do? Don't answer too quickly. Anytime. Because if I ask anywhere, some of you go back to any time. Well, I mean, there might have been a day when I would have gone on a mission field. There might have been, but now I'm retired. Really? Because if you're retired, doesn't that mean you have a lot of time? And I bet you still have a lot of good years to give, and you probably know more than the rest of us. Why wouldn't you go? Some of you, well, I'm in the middle of my career. I just got done with college, and now it's the... Who said you had to quit doing your job? Do you know there's countries where you have companies that will send you and we couldn't even get in as missionaries? Like a guy like me that's preaching the Bible, starting a church, they wouldn't even let me go there, but IBM will send you there. John Deere will send you there. Cisco will send you there. LabCorp will send you there. They get looking for people to sign up for that and they will pay, they, LabCorp will pay or IBM or one of those companies will pay for you to go to a closed country and then you could be the light of the gospel in those places. Quit thinking about it like you have to leave your career. What if you leverage your career for the kingdom? So don't say any time like the time passed. Anywhere in your community, in China, anywhere. And that's what Jesus is doing with these disciples here. You, and there's one thing they do well is they go, here, you can have all of it. You, they don't negotiate. You can have the seven loaves. And then what happens is Jesus uses them. They're the ones that go and distribute. What do you think it was like for them? Let me read to you verse 6. Verse 6, and look at a couple of the, I'll just share with you a couple of the Greek tenses here in, in verse 6. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. And then there's these multiple participles. When he had taken, that's the first one, the seven loaves and given thanks, that's the second one, and he broke them, that's the third one. Each one of those is in what's called the aorist tense. It's kind of an undefined tense, but in context you can sometimes figure out what's happening. It's a decisive one-time decision moment that took place. And then it says, broke them and gave. And that's the next word here that's in the imperfect tense. He just kept giving. It's repeated action over and over and over again. And so he, he took the bread once. He gave thanks for the bread once. He didn't pray a prayer every time he was breaking the bread. And then he broke the bread one time, but he just keeps giving it out. He just keeps giving it out. Seven loaves, equal to about seven Happy Meals. 
although they'd still taste the same 2,000 years later. But anyway, seven months. So just handing the stuff out. Just handing it out, 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 handing it out. If you're Bartholomew or Philip or Peter or Andrew, one of these 12 disciples, and he's using them to go hand it out. They're the ones that are actually feeding the people. Jesus is the source. He's the power. But they're the ones that are doing it. They're the vessels. It's like he works with us. You come back and you're like, man, I've already served like 100 people. Seven loaves wouldn't feed that many people. It's already been more than seven. And there goes Philip, and there goes Bartholomew, and there goes John, and Peter's got, he's got a lot. Peter's got two trays, overachiever, and he got all these things happening, they're carrying stuff out. You're like, where does this keep coming from? It's the power of his provision. And then they get to the end, and they got seven baskets full, hampers full, and they get to experience the power of God, unlike anybody else. And you start thinking about people that God uses significantly throughout Scripture. Read Hebrews chapter 11 if you want a chapter of people who live by faith. All the people that God uses significantly, they surrender. And sometimes they surrender in ways that don't even make sense. Noah, I want you to build a boat. What if Noah had said, no, I'm good. I don't want a boat. I'm working on my 401k. But he trusts in a way no one else had trusted. And he experiences God in a way that no one else experiences God. According to his power immeasurably more. They're beyond amazement. What about Abraham? Abraham, I want you to go. I'm not going to tell you where you're going to go, but I want you to trust me and walk. Well, I, I'm kind of comfortable here, God. I'm just, I just built a house. Got my dad's here. No, I want you to step out. I want you to give me your son. Well, that doesn't even make sense, God, but then he empowers it, doesn't he? Then he gives him power, and he shows his power, and he demonstrates his power. Elijah. Anne referenced Elijah 19, or 1 Kings chapter 19. What about 18? Fire from heaven? Really? Who else experienced that? Who's going to trust like that? But here's my life. I'll do what you want. Isaiah, here I am. Send me. And he gets to experience God in a way that people who don't live by faith, they, they don't have to experience it. What about you? Are you make it available to God? What are you holding back? Whatever you're holding back is probably the next thing he wants you to give. So what is it? Your time, your talent, your money. There's hungry people in your neighborhood. There's hungry people in this community. You have food. Make it available. There's people that need, there's people that don't have the healing and the freedom in Jesus Christ that you have. Will you make it available? Will you look for those up when you're at the grocery store, when you're at work, when you're talking to somebody, you see the pain in their face and make your, what you've been healed from available to them. The gospel, there are lost people all over this community, over a million lost people. If every, if every church is full, there's like a million lost people, even if the churches are reaching everybody. There's all kinds of people to reach. Did you make it available? The gospel? your life, your money, your time, your talent, everything that you are. That's how you know the power of God. But do you understand the person of God? Because just because he's powerful, do I trust him? Yeah, what's the next part of this passage is some people who doesn't, do, do not understand the person of Jesus Christ. If we're going to understand the plan of Jesus, we've got to understand the person of Jesus. Look at verses 11 through 13. So the Pharisees, we've met them before. They've been here multiple times, always in confrontation with Jesus. The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus. And then Mark tells us their motive, to test him. They asked him for a sign from heaven. Verse 12, he sighed deeply. Now we saw him sigh last week and it was out of compassion because he felt the pain of the man who couldn't hear. How he knew what it was like to be misunderstood, to be rejected. Here he sighs and he's ticked off. He's angry. I can't believe that you guys are asking for another... Like, if we read this, don't you just think to yourself, you want a sign? He just fed 4,000 people with a couple Happy Meals. If you go back, and every time you see the Pharisees, you see a sign. You see, the Pharisees come, they're sitting in the front row, Jesus teaching in this house, this guy gets lowered through the ceiling. 
Jesus says the sins are forgiven. They start thinking to themselves, See, only God can forgive sins. Jesus says, this will mess you up, start speaking into your, what you're thinking. So you know that I can forgive sins, get up and walk. He's saying, I'm God, there's your sign. He casts out demons. Then they say, it's by the power of Satan you cast out Satan. Then he confronts their hearts in verses 1 through 23 of chapter 7. And here they come, and they ask for a sign, and he's, he's mad. Why does this generation ask for a miraculous sign? I tell you the truth, no sign will be given to it. In fact, there's a Hebrew Hebrew way that he's saying this is an oath. If I were to do a sign, may I be cursed. If I were to do a sign, may I die. There's no way you're getting me to do a sign from heaven. Then he left them, got back into the boat, and crossed the other side. He gets in another boat. There's another boat incident here. He's upset with them because they don't understand his person. He's revealing his person. Remember what Mark's all about. The good news about the person, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The whole book's about the power and person of Jesus. And they're saying here, just give us a sign. A sign from heaven. What they're asking for is an apocalyptic sign. We'll get back to that in just a second. But we see the motive of why they're asking. It's to test him. They're putting Jesus on trial. Here's the reality. Jesus isn't on trial. If anybody's on trial, it's you. It's me. He's God. He's not on trial. But you know who the people are that test Jesus, that are testing God? It's the people who say things like this. I could never believe in a God who... You've heard it, so fill in the blank. What are the phrases that comes after that? I can never believe in a God who allows evil into this world. I can never believe in a God who would endorse homosexual marriage. I can never believe in a God who... Fill in the blank. Whatever they want God to be like. And these guys are asking Jesus to be the kind of savior they want him to be, to bring an apocalyptic sign. And that means, as Jewish guys, the Pharisees are Jewish guys, and this is a Gentile audience he's just fed. The first feeding in chapter 6 was a Jewish audience. This feeding that happens here in Mark chapter 8 is a Gentile audience. And what it meant was that they wanted the Jews to be comforted and the Gentiles to be annihilated. Because they believed the Messiah was going to come and defeat God's people's enemies. And they believed, the Pharisees believed they were God's people just because ethnically they were born into Israel. And so what they're saying, and think about how terrible this is actually. We want you to wipe out the Gentiles. The Gentiles you just said you have compassion on. The Gentiles you just fed. The Gentiles you're going to die for soon. We want you to destroy them. And then we'll believe. And what they're asking for is not just a Messiah who will do their bidding, but one that they don't even have to have faith to follow. They want a sign so compelling that they'll believe without faith. You realize there's a difference between belief and faith, right? Like we can believe things that don't require any faith. I believe that Chris Travis is sitting in the second row here today. I believe today is Sunday. I believe that I'm staring into some really bright lights. That doesn't require any faith, none of those things. There's overwhelming evidence to me that today is Sunday, that I'm looking at bright lights, that Chris Travis is sitting right here. I believe all that stuff. Now, faith would be something like if my good friend Chris walked up to me afterwards, after baptism today, and said, hey, you know what? I wanted to hang out with you a little bit today, Scott. I'd like to take you to lunch. Uh, Let's go to Brick's Pizza. I'll pay. Right, Chris? Wouldn't that be great? Why are you laughing, Chris? Anyway. But here's why it would require faith. Because I would have to trust the person of Chris enough to know that at 1 o'clock he's actually going to show up. And so I have to take actions. Faith is put into action. I have to take actions to demonstrate that I believe that he's going to be there at one. And when the check comes, that I believe he's going to pay the check. 
And that requires faith. There's a difference between belief and faith. They want a sign so they don't have to exercise faith. Some of us do the same thing. We're willing, God, we want to do what you want us to do, but just make it so clear that it doesn't require any faith from me. Do this. If you did this, if I got this phone call at noon, then I'll do this thing for you. And you hear people barter with God like that, right? Like, God, if you would make this girl like me, if you would give me this job, if you would get me out of this bind, then I would. It's if you would, whatever you want to happen, blank, fill in the blank, change it. And then I would, whatever you think God really wants you to do, then I'll give you my heart, then I'll give you my money, then I'll do this thing. And what we're saying, we don't want to exercise faith, which then demonstrates we don't understand the person of God. Do you know why? Because he says without faith, it's impossible to please him. Hebrews eleven six, Without faith, it is impossible to please God. So every step that he's going to call you to make is going to require faith, which means you don't know. Noah didn't know how that was going to turn out. Abraham didn't know how things were going to happen. These guys don't know what's going to take place. They don't get the plan because they don't understand the person. They have to step out by faith. And as they step out by faith, they get to know the person of Christ more and more and more. And here's what happened. If you placed your faith in Jesus for salvation, which these Pharisees have not, they're just religious. But if you come to the place where you end of yourself and you realize you're not good enough and that you're actually an enemy of God, you're rebelling against him the way you're living your life and you turn to him and you trust in the cross of Christ, he begins at that point a good work in you. But it's not over. He will be faithful to complete that work, which means there's going to be another faith step and another faith step and another, which means he feeds the 5,000 and then guess what? A couple months later, he's going to call for faith again. And the question is, are we going to be, you were omnipotent in the past, but I got this one. That's not faith. Make it so obvious. That's not faith. We walk by faith. That's what he desires from us is faith. And when we walk by faith, what we're saying is, I might not know all the details. I might not have a promise about how this is going to happen, but I trust your person, and I believe you're good. And even if that means something opposite of what I would fill in the blank with, opposite of what I would put down for my plan, it's your script. You write it. I only have 70 or 80 or so years in this life, and I want to pour it out for you. I make it all available to you. That's what it is to live by faith. Do you know his person? Do you trust that he's good? Do you, do, you, do you know why we study the Bible? Even why we do this stuff on Sunday morning? Do you think about it? We study the Bible, and some people act like it's like because we're going to stand before God, and he's going to give us a quiz. And then there's methods of evangelism like that. If God were to ask you, why should you get into heaven? You say, well, because I, do you know what? The Bible clearly states it's not because you know the right facts. Matthew chapter 7, depart from me, I never knew you. You know all the answers, but I don't know you, and you don't know me. Do you know? We study, not so we can answer quiz questions. We don't study. See, some people, especially if you have a legalistic background, which means that there's like all these do's and don'ts that you're supposed to live by. Some people live their lives, and you read about this in the book of Galatians on your own study, but you think you place your faith in Jesus for salvation, but then it's on you to live out the Christian life. And so the way we live is, like, if I do these good things, then God will do these things for me. And if I do this, then he'll do that. And like, it's a math problem. Like, if I just obeyed this, and then he would do. And like, he's that simple, for one. But what happens for people that live their lives like that is that you do the stuff and you work really hard and you're trying and you're being a good boy and being a good girl and then God doesn't do what you hoped that he would do. He never promised he was going to do those things. And then you're upset with him because you don't understand his person. It's like in my relationship with my wife. I love my wife. My wife loves me. And I'm still learning about her. We've been together uh, 16 years being married. We dated for five years. We've been together more than we've lived this, you know, more than half our lives. And 
I'm still learning things about her, but here's why. It's not because her dad's going to give me a quiz someday. I don't think he is anyways, so, but it's not so that I can answer the questions right. You know, what surprises her? What is she, what's her favorite food? What's her favorite place? It's not, it's not so I can pass a quiz. And it's not even so, as much as I, I actually, in my selfishness, wish it was true that you could do this, but it's not, it's not so that I can know, like, if I say these things when I come home from work, then she'll do these things, and if I did that, then it just make my life easier. That's not why. And I don't read a book about her to study her. I just spend time with her. And the reason why I do that is because it brings joy to my heart to learn new things. And why do we study Jesus? It's because he, did you read, he satisfied this crowd. He can satisfy you. He's the only one that can really bring joy to your heart. It's when, it doesn't matter how difficult the circumstances might be. If it brings us closer to him, guess what? He's going to fill us with joy do you trust that? Do you understand his person? See, if you don't understand his person, you don't understand his power. Because if he doesn't have that power, it doesn't matter how nice he is. If you don't understand his person, you don't understand his power, you can't get his plan for your life, regardless of what the circumstances are. And I shared with you at the beginning of the message, there was circumstances happened in my life, and I was frustrated. I didn't understand what they were. I remember talking to a couple friends. I had one friend tell me, I said, I think the problem for you, Scott, is you have a hard time receiving God's love. He's trying to get your attention. And then he said, you live your life, as I shared more details of what I was thinking when this stuff was happening, what was going on. He said, you live your life like you're trying to prove something. He said, which means you don't think the cross is enough. Which that hurt to hear, to be honest with you. Because I'm constantly telling you guys the cross is enough. But let me be honest with you. I'm still learning this stuff too. And sometimes I do live my life like that. And I don't understand all the details of the plan that he's trying to reveal to me yet. But I know that he's trying to reveal his power and his person I know he wants me to walk by faith. And do you want to know God's plan for you? And come back next week. We're going to talk more about it. Let me pray. Father, I'm thankful that you are a good God. And we sang at the beginning of the service that you are a good, good Father. You are a good God. And we trust your goodness. And we trust your power. That you could intervene and change things, but you have us here in these situations, in this life, for some reason. And we know that ultimately you want to make yourself known through our lives. We know that you want to help us to know you better and to grow in intimacy with you. And I pray we would surrender to you and with our idolatrous hearts and trying to go after other stuff and all the list of things that that could be, God, that you'd strip that away and help us to know you better. I pray if there are any here that don't have a salvation relationship with you, they haven't even trusted you as Savior, maybe they're just religious or maybe they're just trying you out, that you would pierce their heart today and draw them to you in a relationship that would begin they would trust your son Jesus as Savior. I pray for those that are hurting, they're going through difficult circumstances at work and in family and health, and I pray, God, that you'd meet them in those moments like the man last week we saw in intimacy. I pray for those that need to see your power. I pray that you'd demonstrate yourself in a way that it's just you. And God, I pray that you would draw us closer to you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.